Hi, I'm Dave Ferguson, pastor of the Collegedale Church here on the campus of Southern Adventist University. Welcome to our podcast. We're going to explore today some of the relevant words of Jesus Christ in Scripture to my life, to your life. So enjoy the message. And happy Sabbath to you. Uh, welcome to worship again. I've been racing back and forth, Tim. I see you were, you were out there too. Uh, if you have not figured it out, we want you to be sure and know we'll continue this throughout July at least that we have a 9 o'clock worship service in the, uh, at the Goliath Wall, connected to the Goliath Wall, and then at 10.30, Adoration in the Park, and we just made it without rain, barely, just barely. Uh, I also am kind of curious, I think Litch, I'm having to come up to speed here, I believe Litch was actually the one giving the welcome here. Did he make mention of this afternoon's activities? And so I'll just say just very, very briefly, at 4 o'clock, 4 p.m., if you go to, the, to our website, you can click through the conference website or to the Georgia Cumberland Conference website, there's a link there, and there is a panel discussion on racial, uh, racial justice. There we go. And equality. And I'm participating in it. And probably they said that, but I just need to give a little disclaimer. There are going to be way more people, way more qualified to discuss this than me. I am willing, a willing participant, because I think this is so important. Uh, but I hope you'll join us at 4 o'clock for that. And then at 6 o'clock, Pastor Reginald Horton and myself are going to lead a prayer time on Zoom for whoever would like to come. If, if you're not able to involve yourself in either those two things, though, I just really ask that you spend a little bit of your energy today with your family. Um, with one another. Maybe if you're single and alone at home, call somebody up and just talk for a minute and then pray over this important, important um, piece of our family's story. Uh, today, we continue our revival series. Our revival series continues. I'm going to invite you to turn in a minute to John chapter 12, but our, our revival series continues with the simple title, Sorry. Sorry. I, I'm going to make a declaration that I don't have any uh, data for. <laughs> it's my guess. It is my somewhat informed sense that human beings, just as, as a whole, human beings struggle to apologize, struggle with saying, I'm sorry. It is not comfortable. It is, for many of us, not particularly natural, or at least not in a way that can be taken terribly seriously. John chapter 12, as we get into this particular subject for our revival series, which as you know, I have a little book that I'm following along with and taking some things out of, that books, the book Steps to Christ. And we're in our kind of our third revival conversation. Last week, we talked about the first step in Steps to Christ. The first step is a huge, big step going across the gulf and across the divide. And the great news is, I'm not the one who takes it. The first step to Christ is the, is the step that Christ takes. He bridges the gap. He breaches the distance. And he comes and he's right there with us and upon us. And then comes the next step. But as we go into this second step, I remind you of John chapter 12, verse 32, when Jesus would say, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, a reference to his 
going to the cross, when I am lifted up, that will in fact breach that gap. That will span the distance and I will draw all men to myself. If we are ever to say, I'm sorry, there is an urging that comes from inside and my suggestion to you is that that is a part of the distance that has been spanned, that big huge step that Jesus takes to bring us to a place melting us down in some way by his presence in our lives. So, sorry. Let's pray. Father, bless us as we dig through scriptures, tell some stories, and consider all that it takes to say, I'm sorry. Bless us, I, I pray. In your name, amen. So what I'd like for you to do, if you're with others, maybe you're not, maybe you're, uh, maybe you're home alone and you've got some friends that you can kind of text back and forth to, chat with somehow. If you're watching, you could chat in the little uh, chat room there. Go ahead and put your responses there so others can see them too. But if you're with family, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a category, something I'd like for you to think of while I give you an example or two for myself. And that, for, that, that, that categorical question, if you think back to when you were a child, and some in our midst don't have to think back to because you are children in our families, but you think about being a child uh, and your favorite games, favorite games to play. I have some of my children, my family that are with me here. I'm quite curious what they will say about this. We love, love, love playing games. When I was a little child, loved playing games. Some of the games didn't have to be kind of keep score kind of games. They might be scenarios we played with a variety of stuffed animals or any number of things. In fact, my older brother, my younger sister, myself, we ended up starting to produce, we'll call it, these puppet shows for my parents. So there was a lot of practicing, a lot of stuff was going on there. We named our puppet uh, Troop. It was called the Poppy Street Puppets. I believe we were pretty concerned about copyright infringement at that very terribly young age and thought probably this protected us because you can see there is really no similarity between Sesame Street and Poppy, you know, because we went way off on a whole different seed. Poppy Street Puppets. And then the alliteration, it was a really great way to go. Um, but we spent a lot of time creating puppet stories and puppet shows. But then there were those other kinds of games. I bought you a little bit of time to think. The kinds of games that you might want to play as children or even now. Favorite games. Anybody? Jim, do you have one? Favorite game. As a child. child. That sounds a lot like no, not yet. <laughs> Okay, anybody here have one that you were, you were listening and thinking that I would brought, draw you out into the sunshine and, and call upon you? Matt, do you have anything as a child, a game that you would play? Monopoly. Monopoly. I, there is a picture somewhere of me as a little child, one of the very first times I'm playing Monopoly, and I am sitting forward with my arms crossed on the table, and it looks like I probably am sure I'm going to rule the world. Um, as, a, as a little guy, my money and properties are spread before me and I'm looking at them all very, quite satisfied. Let me ask you this. How many of you have pr played the game Sorry? The game Sorry. It is a fairly old Parker Brother game, Sorry, that you may very well have played. Four people, so if you're a family of five, Sorry, you can't all play. 
four little pieces each and you have a home base and you're trying to get around a board and get to the final spot for all these little kind of conical pieces that you're moving about the board. Uh, and if you look up the question, why did they name this game Sorry, what you'll discover is the reason they named it Sorry is because there are so many ways for one player to thwart the progress of another player that thus you would be regularly saying Sorry. Yeah, you can't, you can't slide down there. You can't go there. You can't move forward. You can't come out of there. You can't go into there. Sorry, right? Which is about the way I think we say sorry, you know, 90% of the time. It isn't that we are actually sorry. It's just that we don't want them to hold it against us sometime in the future, right? This thing that's happening to you, you know, my bad. Did it on purpose. I'll do it again. But yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry. It is hard to find people, and I'll admit I'm not one of them, it is hard to find individuals who easily, readily say, I'm sorry. We are resistant to repenting. We are resistant to being told we need to repent, right? I don't know, anybody here who has children who've gotten into some fight and you're trying to get them to say I'm sorry and then there's that, there's that sorry that doesn't mean I'm sorry. There's the sorry that means I'm not sorry. Right? Sorry. Yeah, I'm not sorry, right? Please, please, you two need to tell each other, tell her, tell him that you're sorry. Well, but he, but, right? But he did. In fact, that's one of our biggest biggest pieces to set in front of any request of repentance is the, is the whole what about category, right? Well, but what about, hmm, this is something that's wrong. Well, but what about that? Not even really addressing whether that was wrong or not. It's a shell game distraction maneuver. I remember vividly sitting uh, in my brother's closet in our home as a child in North Carolina knees to my chest, sitting on the floor, clothes above me, a few things on the floor, and I was holding, I was holding a pack of gum. This pack of gum was my brother Lowell's pack of gum. And it was about half empty, half full. And I had slid one of the sticks of his pack of gum out of the little pack and there it was. I had actually unwrapped it already so that it lay there on the foil wrapper there and I, I found myself there just kind of internally discussing the dilemma. What was I going to do? I wasn't going to ask my brother because I knew what the answer would be. No, you can't have a piece of my gum. And then it hit me. <laughs> I have vivid memories of closing my eyes and praying for forgiveness before putting the gum in my mouth to chew it. I knew there was a step there somewhere, right? That, I, that there was a repent. I should repent for what I'm about to do, right? I'm not actually sorry that I, but, but if I, if I, there's a, there's a, there's some sort of a loop here I, got, I should go through and then I'm clear, right? And it's our approach to a living our lives. It's like we are attempting to tame our sin, cuddle up next to it, right? Uh, every once in a while, somebody will ask where, where we live. 
And uh, in trying to describe it, a little over a half a mile from here, trying to describe where we live, there in the corner of Surrey and Detol Roads, Sooner or later, if we talk to enough people, there could be somebody here who, who, if I were to describe it just right, would go, oh, 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 you mean where the Nortons lived? Well, yeah, yeah, that's where, it's where the Nortons, or somebody else, where the Langs lived. Yeah, mm-hmm, yep, that's, or then sooner or later, somebody says, that's where the mountain lion lived. Yeah, I, so the first time or two that I heard that, it's like the what? Say again, the, so the Langs I know, the Nortons I know, I don't know the mountain lions. I don't know that family. But in fact, the family that built this particular home had come back from the mission field. Their children, having gotten used to living in Africa and all of the wildlife and the amazing things that were around, and they were kind of bored with, with American pets and what was around here. And so there was some mountain lion cub that needed a home and to be brought back to health, uh, possibly something of this nature. And so they built a cage around the back porch along the sliding glass doors. And, uh, and, and as it grew and grew and grew, it became larger and larger. And of course, if you ask someone who really works in zoos and this sort of thing. So, so can you tame that mountain lion? They would say absolutely not. It's an apex predator. You can try to modify its behavior, but in one generation you cannot possibly tame that mountain lion. It is not a pet, is what someone working with animals of this sort would tell us. They would say, if anything, you're their pet. And the day will come when your guard is too low. I don't necessarily recommend you try it. I did, though. I went online and I was kind of searching around. I found a document that listed in paragraph descriptive form hundreds and hundreds of incidents with apex predators kept in strange places, makeshift pens, and this sort of thing around the United States over the last uh, about 20 years. People who thought, what I can do is I'm, I'm going to have this little lion cub and it's going to be my lion. And uh, then, of course, it comes a point where the lion decides, now's the time I'm going to tell you that you're my pet and I'm hungry and don't need it anymore. Or a tiger, or, or, or a mountain lion. And one wonders, <clears throat> on the subject of repentance, forgiveness, confession, is it possible that Christians, possibly more than anyone else, create a weird little shell game with repentance where we do this little tiny piece of it, but it's us trying to manage our pet rather than take down the apex predator with respect to what's really going on there? And some of us might say, no, no, I, you know, long ago I've given my heart to Christ, I, I repented of all these things. And I'm in good shape now. I don't have an apex predator in my, in my life I need to be concerned about. I think it's possible that if you don't know you have an apex predator in your life, in your life you might already be in its mouth. Because this, 
The situation with our sin is not slight, it is not light, it is not something to be managed, it is something to be rid of. Interesting. Jesus would come upon the scene. Mark would tell about it in the first chapter. Unlike some of the other uh, Gospels where it's given a lot more detail, he simply quickly goes through the fact that Jesus was baptized then went out into the wilderness and, and something happened there and then, and then he came back out of the wilderness and started his ministry. And his ministry begins in the 14th verse of that first chapter of Mark with these words, The time has come, Jesus says. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe the good news. The time has come for this ministry of mine and it's all about repentance. I've got to admit, I'm not as fond of the repentance part as I am the love part, the repentance on my part as I am the sacrifice of God. We're not that fond of repentance. It's not easy to ask for forgiveness. In fact, I, I have an admission to make. I've done this once now out, out in the park. I decided to go ahead and share it. But I have been over the last 24 hours or so going over something I'm a little bit of ashamed of, trying to decide if I should or could admit it. Uh, it actually kind of lifted a weight off of me to say so out in the park. So I'm going to go ahead and do it again, James. See, uh, we have today, the North American Division has established a day of prayer over the, over the issue of racial justice and equality and specifically set aside time to pray and listen and try to understand the pain, the frustration, even the anger of our black Seventh-day Adventist Christians. Uh, and so Sherry Williams, our communications director, and myself, we were working this out, and, and I sent her the link to what the conference was putting out or, and the union was putting out, and so she kind of adopted it and tucked it in and showed it to me and said, hey, so is this all right? And it was really the North American Division's wording, and we were trying to decide if I should word something in there too, and I was reading it, and I was thinking it, and, and you, so you can't tell as you read it. If you go online to our website, you can read it there if you got it in, a, in an email blurb, you would read it there. And I read it, and I, and I read it, and I changed just, I believe it's two words. I just took them out. Because I was uncomfortable. And again, I'm, I'm ashamed to say it. I, I'm partly ashamed because it betrays uh, it betrays probably something about me, and it also betrays a little something about what I fear about you. Um, the way the commentary goes in the back half of this little blurb, it talks about coming together to listen, to pray, and to show compassion and understanding to the black members of our community. That's the way what you received would read. But I removed two words. Maybe it's three. <laughs> The way it originally read was, we're coming together to listen and pray and ask forgiveness with compassion. So why did I remove it? Because I've been around when white people 
have asked forgiveness for certain things before and have watched what happens to them. It's fear. It certainly betrays my not thinking the best of my white brothers and sisters who I probably should assume can handle the fact that there easily could be things we need to ask forgiveness for. But this is a part of our story around repentance. Like repentance to be in any way I mean, it's so strange, actually. It's so odd and strange because we are very fond of point of sin and come short of the glory of God. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags. Well, then what of? No? Well, but not systemically. Well, sure. And even there might be something to ask. Hmm. <clears throat> I'm interested chapter 1, verse 9, you know well. Verse 9, we say, uh, but read verse 8. If we claim ourselves and the truth is not in us, if we confess, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all, un kind of put it in a cage. We'd, we'd love to just kind of house our apex predator. Today, it's going to bang its way through that sliding glass door, actually, some of the children who grew up in our home, children of the original builders of the home, and their children, and they're, they're waving at me from the side. That's us. I shared what I had understood about how they had gotten rid of the mountain lion, and, and our family grows up, gets married, has a little baby girl. Baby girl, as she's getting two years of age, somewhere in that. Yeah, well, so when, when you are interested in me, that's one thing. Whole different way. Pet it nicely. Give it some. The sin of your life is interested in you and not your pet. You are its pet. Your thoughts about saying I'm sorry. A verse of scripture from 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians chapter 7. It says this. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves you with no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. There's a way to be sorry that brings death. There's a way to be sorry that brings life and rids you of regret. So what is that? That's what we need. That's what we would like to check into right now. And so uh, I have admitted to you that I'm using the book Steps to Christ as a little bit of a guide way along the way here, and I'm going to continue to do that. Of course, there are scriptures that I'm going to re reference. But in addition, there is a, a little booklet that I am going to be you know, grabbing things from. I'm not going to constantly be referring to it or pointing it out. Every once in a while I might mention Thomas Watson's name. Thomas Watson lived between 1620 and 1686 in England as a Puritan preacher and writer. And he wrote a little document called The Doctrine of Repentance. And he had some very interesting ideas in it. A number of things that he believed were important to repentance. The very first one is, he suggested, repentance has sight. Repentance comes with being able to see. 
Fascinating, isn't it, how many times Jesus healed a blind person, and that must have been phenomenal and amazing, but on the subject of eternal life, to be able to actually see, I need some healing from Jesus. Jesus spans the distance. He is lifted up by the cross. He comes to me, and he heals my blindness, and he starts to reveal to me the things inside of me, and this is one of the things I'm going to just say, confess to my friends, the nailers, this is some of what has been happening to me over the course of a number of years here, where I've begun to see some of the differences in the way I've experienced my life versus how maybe you have. But it's not easy. It's easy to just stay blind. Repentance starts with being able to see. Do you want to see? Actually asking God for the miracle of sight starts by questioning whether you can see everything right now. Starting to wonder if there could be something I'm missing that he would like to do in my life. With regularity teaching high school students, I would discuss how we come to whatever form of belief we come to. And so I would kind of share some of Pastor Dave's rules for believing. Rule number one is I'm wrong about stuff. Rule number two is I don't know which stuff. And that creates a problem. If I knew which stuff, I could probably pretty immediately be right about it then. But I don't actually know even the areas of correction I need. I'm blind, which, by the way, creates the perfect scenario for agnosticism. And that's where many people leave the, leave the train for Christianity, is if you can be wrong about some stuff and you don't know which stuff, then how can you actually be right about anything? And in fact, Jesus would say, well, here's the problem. You are not going to be able to prove your faith. That's not what faith actually is. You're going to have to just grab a hold of it. You're going to have to live into it. You're going to have to be willing to grow through it. And I will span the distance and the gap. And I will bring sight for your eyes. I will bring forgiveness and grace for your sins. And so Watson says, starts with sight. And I believe if we did nothing else today in our time of prayer but simply say, Lord God, I admit there is a possibility, just a possibility that there is something I'm not seeing about somebody else's experience, about how I am behaving, about something that's going on in my life. I'm just willing to question it, Lord God. Please bring to me some clarification, some sight. If all we did was that, it started to question ourselves just a tiny, tiny little bit, could we be in a different place? The second thing Watson suggests the second thing is repentance involves a sorrow for sin. Sorrow for sin. So often we feel repentant because of sorrow for consequence. Remember in Exodus, Pharaoh repents. Yeah, not really. He's sorry about what's happening. This thing that's happening to us, what do I have to do to get it to stop? And by the way, threatening people with eternally burning hellfire or even short-term hellfire is another way to do the exact same kind of thing. You repent because of the possible consequences. Maybe we throw in the goodness of a reward. But in fact, true repentance comes in the knowledge that it is not that this is a little arbitrary thing that is keeping me from getting where I want to go, but in fact, it is an actual thing that is growing up in my life that will cripple me. It is a 
possible apex predator that's going to take me down one day when I think I'm just feeding it. Sorrow for sin, actually being sorry for that peace. Steps to Christ suggests it is not in us to get there on our own. A human being doesn't do it. It's not our way. But it is in Jesus taking that first step and coming close to us. It is in his goodness being next to us and speaking into our lives that we can see the difference and that we can be humbled and that we can be open, that our eyes can be opened. But I fear it is a common thing for Christians to prefer the club to the Jesus that is embedded in the word. We're not as interested in being close to him as we are having our things. It's not just being sorry for getting caught. Sorry that you, that this happened. You can hear it in our apology sometimes. You ever, you ever said somebody, to somebody, well, I'm sorry you feel that way? <laughs> it's not actual sorrow for your part. Sorry, sorry that you feel that way. Sorry you took it that way. Sorry you are you. I am sorry you're here. <laughs> I would probably have had no problem except for you. That's not repentance. Repentance says, I am here for understanding my part and I realize there's some part in me that needs to grow and it is causing me damage. And in fact, Jesus will say, it's one thing to be sorry for the action. I want you to be sorry for the action came from because that bubbles up into all sorts of other things. We can take away adultery and yet the thing that gave birth to the adultery can go flying off into some other area. So Jesus in Matthew chapters 5 and 6, he will say, you've heard it said, be sorry for the action. I'm saying be sorry for the root problem in the heart. That's the apex predator. That's the mountain lion waiting in the bushes. So, Watson suggests it is a strong likelihood that some part of your or my repentance needs to involve confession, admission. You ever said you're sorry but kept it general enough that nobody could really even quite tell what you were sorry for? It's a common practice I'm sure I'm struggling with. In fact, <laughs> there is the suggestion the wicked man confesses sin in general. It is the path to righteousness that is able to confess something specific. I learned a long time ago in a marriage uh, growth opportunity the difference between simply saying I'm sorry which often can very much come across as you know I'm sorry you're you know not as bright as me or whatever but to actually add, I'm sorry, will you please forgive me? There's something about saying, will you forgive me? That takes a bat <laughs> to the wall of our hearts and admits back in here, 
I've got stuff. Will you forgive me? And oh, that we could be specific. In Psalm 32, and again, I wasn't here when possibly they read this passage. I hope they did, but even if they didn't, Psalm 32, David, as he is struggling with, grappling with, reeling from the fact that he's been caught. He's been caught in a big, huge, massive problem in which it results in his stealing another man's wife at least through pressure that would only be afforded the king, possibly raping her, ending up killing her husband, and he's been exerting all kinds of power to keep it covered up in secret. And that's, you know, I mean, it's like sand dripping through the fingers. And finally Nathan comes to him and exposes him and in the end, David will not simply repent. He will give a little commentary about the confession of his heart. Do you remember the third verse of Psalm 23 when he says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. In the very next verse, he will talk about the weight of God's presence as if he was breaking down. I don't know what it is that is weighing your bones in half, but there is something amazing that happens with confession and repentance and true sorrow. One person said, to be 99% known is to be unknown. There is a gift that comes with transparency, with having the difficult... You've, you've had it happen, haven't you? With having the difficult con conversations that you were so reluctant that I avoided at all costs and then they happened with or without us and by the end of it, we're in such the better place and wonder why we didn't do that earlier. Finally, I point out that there's a transition that occurs in the truly repentant heart toward a hatred of sin. Again, if you think of the mountain lion situation, it is to realize I cannot have, that this is not a part of my life. This is not safe for me. This is a predator. This needs to be taken down, gotten rid of. Paul would write about it in Romans chapter 7. He would just gut-wrenchingly expose that he struggles in his battle with sin because he keeps doing the thing he hates. What a key piece, though, that in fact he hates it. Now, we close today with... Uh, a revisiting of a story in Luke chapter 7, if you don't mind. Luke chapter 7 tells a variety of stories. Most scholars believe that the story that ends chapter 7 of Luke was not actually in the right time frame. The story is told in four different places, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but a little differently in each. In fact, Matthew and Mark will tell this story as if it happens two days before the Passover, the Tuesday of the Passion Week. John talks about it as if, it's not super clear, but as if it's possibly up to six days before Passover. Luke tells a story without saying exactly when, but way back when John the Baptist has just gone into prison and has then sent his disciples out to see if this Jesus is really the one. 
Some scholars think this could have been similar stories that happened in a multiple. In the book Desire of Ages, the story is told in the 62nd chapter as if all of these stories are the same story. And so I'm going to do the same. But you should know there are pieces from each story that are a little bit different or fuller or less full than others. For instance, in one story, this is a Pharisee, the one we read here, that there's a Pharisee who invites Jesus to a dinner. Another, it's a Pharisee named Simon. In another, it's a leper named Simon. And one must wonder if this isn't a Pharisee named Simon who had leprosy that Jesus healed. There's a woman who shows up in the story. The woman in the story uh, here is a woman, and in fact, you've you got to kind of read it to follow along. It's a woman in that town who lived a sinful life. And certain of our versions would say, it is a woman who was a sinner of the town. The town sinner. There's, there's good evidence that this is actually a word reference to the fact of, to, to what her sinful life looked like. That she was a woman who was a prostitute. That she had broken down in this society in such a way that was publicly known. In other versions of this same story, the point is made that it is Mary, the, the sister of Lazarus, who it's also told in some of those stories is actually here at this meal. And her sister, Martha, is cooking for the meal. In some of the stories, as Mary breaks this box of perfume on Jesus, in some of the stories she pours it on his head and some on his feet, and Ellen White in Desire of Ages says she pours it on his head and his feet. Some of the stories, at that moment, Judas asks, wait a minute, how much could this be sold for? This, this is a waste, this is a problem. In two of the stories, People begin to murmur who are wondering, wow, that's expensive. Why is it being done this way? And some would wonder if it isn't that Judas is a sign, a symbol that Judas is so crafty, he can get a little thing started and then turn it over to others and let them just run with it. The story goes that after the meal, during the meal, along the way in the meal, Jesus is reclined. A woman comes in and she comes in and stands initially behind Jesus. And she has a, an alabaster box. These perfume bottles typically had long stems that would either be snapped off and then poured out in one using or if they could craftily, carefully enough, and it was very hard to do, get the top undone, wax and cork or different things that would be involved they could then use it by dabbing, but this giraffe-like neck often would just be snapped off and poured out. And this is what she does. She pours the whole bottle of perfume. It's spikenard, which is a root perfume from the Himalaya mountains that would have cost our equivalent of fifty to $60,000. It's a year's wages for somebody well-employed. And, of course, it doesn't take much wondering to consider where did she even get the money for this? And in the story, Simon, the Pharisee, the leper, now healed, he knows where she got it. He knows who she is. He knows her life. And he is wondering what in the world is going on with this man. 
And he, of course, is not considering her on his level in the slightest of ways. This woman comes, perfume on his feet. She begins to sob, to weep, her tears raining down on his feet. And she takes her hair and begins to mop his feet, daub his feet with the perfume mixed with her tears. And by the way, you could easily, if you didn't know the culture, miss the fact that for a woman in public to have her hair down was a scandalous thing. If a woman were to walk through in that day and age, a Hebrew woman who was married walked through the streets with her hair down, it was just cause for divorce. And here she is. But there's this thing with Jesus he has, in her life, spanned the whole distance. And she is not hiding anything. But Simon thinks she is. Simon thinks Jesus doesn't know. What are you doing? This, is, this woman, if you only knew, how can you be a prophet? And Jesus turns to him with a twinkle in his eye and tells him a story, much like Nathan did with David. Hey, by the way, Simon, tell me this. Uh, so if there was a businessman who had two people that owed him debts, one owed him like two years' worth of wages, the other one owed him just a week's worth of wages, and he forgave both of them, which would love him more? Duh. The one he forgave more, I would assume. Yeah. Keep an eye on that response, Simon, Jesus would say. Because this woman here, I have forgiven her all of her many sins. <laughs> what a thing to say. You know, if your life is nicely compartmentalized and you are secreting yourself through the years that other people don't really know what all you are up to or what you are about or what you're struggling with, for Jesus to say, all of your many sins are forgiven is a very pointed, wait, come hey, hold on now. Who are you saying needs forgiveness exactly here? But if you are out in the open and everyone knows, for Jesus to say to this woman, there is not a single one of your sins that I am not covering right now. They're all dealt with. They're all taken. They're all removed from you. You are forgiven. And here the woman demonstrates for us being able to see what her life truly is and her need for Jesus, coming to him, sorrowing deeply, confessing her sins, and by the way, taking everything that she even gained out of that previous life and dumping it onto his feet to celebrate his forgiveness of her. What a challenge for me. It's not easy to say, I'm sorry. It's not easy to admit, I did something wrong. It's not easy to say, please forgive me. But it is the call of Christ that unlocks every good gift. To know who you are and who Jesus is and the difference and he immediately gives himself away for us. And Ephesians 5 verse 8, the writer Paul would say, you once were in darkness, but now 
you are in the light. Not only that, you once were darkness. And now you are light. Lord God, this isn't a fun conversation if we think about it too clearly and you come to our lives and you challenge us and you invite us to a place of repentance. You would say in Mark that that's exactly what your kingdom is all about. Repentance. That we are at odds with you and we are not right. That we have left your side that we have wandered away that we have cultivated all kinds of craziness in our lives and we've kind of made it our little pets not realizing we're the pet so Lord God we need your help span this distance breach the gulf bring with you grace and forgiveness but also some sight because we need to grow we need to learn we need to see and Lord would you tear down our reticence our unwillingness to ask for forgiveness. May we, someone here, may I experience what David referred to, that finally I can breathe my weary breaking bones will be lifted by your forgiveness. In the name of Jesus we ask it. Amen.